Thank you, worship team. How blessed are we to be here right now? How blessed are we that the God of eternity, a God who we have offended incredibly, a God whose rules we have broken, a God whom we have treated with scorn and contempt, a God whose authority we have tried to subvert, a God like that, a God who is holy and righteous and good, would find it in his heart to forgive creatures like us and they say, come to me and experience my love. How faithful is God to us and how little do we deserve the love that he has given to us? We are tremendously blessed, church, that this God of love and grace calls us to his throne, that he sets aside a day each week where we are to put aside the cares of the world and just focus on him and enjoy him and to be near to him. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord. What a blessing it is to be the family of the Lord. What a blessing it is to be the recipients of his great and mighty gifts. If you've got your Bibles, please open up to Romans. Not Romans, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians. Freaked you out there for a second, didn't I? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are studying through this wonderful letter to the church in Corinth. And we're going to set the context for what God plans to show us today by looking over one of the verses we read last week. Uh, The church that Paul writes this letter to had been acting in a way that was threatening to the unity and the integrity of the church. They had been picking sides and only paying attention to their favorite teachers. We know that this was dividing them. Uh, While they were looking down on others who chose to follow other teachers, it was really affecting their ability to be one. This behavior was immature on its surface, but was actually a symptom of a greater problem that existed among that church. And in many churches where prosperity and relative peace has allowed the people to forget just how great a gift their salvation really is. So rather than conducting themselves with humility and with a great fear of the Lord, they were instead falling back into the pattern of self-absorption the pattern of pride that universally describes the hearts of all men and women who do not trust in Jesus Christ. And so in an effort to make them aware of their error, Paul had challenged these Christians with some diagnostic questions. And so let us look again at chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Three tough questions were charged to the brethren in verse 7 there. First of all, who sees anything different in you? In other words, who exactly are you trying to impress with this behavior? You're trying to act as though following this one particular leader in the church makes you wiser than the others, makes you more discerning than the others. Who are you really trying to impress with that kind of behavior? Do you think that your Savior is impressed with that kind of behavior? Who are you impressing? Probably the only people you're liable to impress are those who are behaving like the people in the world. People who have a carnal heart. They're the ones who enjoy putting others down by lifting themselves up. So Paul asked them, who sees anything different in you? And he says, well, what do you have that you did not earn? that you did not get from Jesus, rather. The Christian owes everything to Christ. And so he must understand that every good thing that he has comes from the generous hand of his God. It's not that he was made uh, alive in Christ because he had earned some favor from God or that he had done something that was worth merit. 
No, God had found us in our sin, had loved us despite our sin, and had drawn us near to himself through his own perfect and precious work. And then he asked a third question. If what you have is a gift from God, then why do you boast about it as if you earned it? Or as if you created it for yourself? In other words, either the Corinthians were forgetting that they owed everything to the Lord and they needed to be reminded of that, or they knew that they owed everything to the, the Lord, but they were being misleading to others and making them believe that they were somehow better than their brothers in Christ. There was rivalry among the house of God. And each group that identified with their favorite leader wanted to prove that their flavor, their brand of Christianity was the best. But where does this separation, this disunity, where does it come from? It comes from wanting the kind of things that we absolutely don't need anymore, church. The prestige of being right the honor of being wiser and better than your neighbor, the satisfaction of feeling like you have the freedom to choose who you want to follow and exactly how you want to worship your Lord. These are things that we don't need as saved believers. And so the next paragraph, which we will spend the bulk of our time on today, exposes how needless their boasting is, how needless their disunity is, and how counterproductive it is to the good that God wants to do to them. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll read out loud for us verses 8 through 17, and we'll study these verses today. Already, you have all that you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but we are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have, countless, you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Would you take a moment and bow your heads with me, church, as we thank God for this word and ask for his discernment to understand it. Father, we, apart from you, are a lost and scattered sheep. And so we are counting on your shepherding right now to draw us near to you. And we ask, Father, that we would not be so foolish as to take our eyes apart from the scripture that you have provided for us, Lord. When we ignore your word, we tend to listen to the voices of false shepherds. We tend to be led astray, and we don't want that to happen to this church, God. Please secure us in the truth. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit, which you have given to us as a guide, would be faithful in directing us back to you again, Lord. 
I ask, Father, that if the word stings us, Lord, that your love and forgiveness would be the medicine that we need to overcome that sting, that we would learn from it, not to stray away from you again, Lord, but that we would stay near. And so, God, help us to cling to the grace of Christ. Help us to be satisfied in all you have to give. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The apostle is writing this letter to a group of very confused believers. Their confusion stems from the fact that by grace God has made them new. He has taken what was once a heart of stone within them, cold to the truth of God, dead to spiritual things, and He has replaced that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that is now humble and soft, that is shapeable, a heart that is alive in Christ. He has opened the eyes of the Corinthians and rescued them from their pagan, godless way of living. The salvation that He has given to them is a transformational work. When God saves a person, immediately He begins a work of changing them, shaping them into something better than they were before. He makes it impossible for that saved believer to continue to be the wretched person that they were before they encountered Christ. Some of that transformation happens immediately, doesn't it? The instant we believe in Christ, our guilt is right away, like that, paid for. God's wrath is instantly removed on us. It is satisfied in Christ. When we are saved and give our lives to Christ, we have the blessing of belonging. Positionally, we move from being enemies outside of the gates of the kingdom to being adopted sons and daughters of the king who not only belong in the kingdom, but are recipients of the great blessings of being a part of that family and having a promised inheritance. We are instantly filled with the Spirit which is our seal in Christ, which is our guide that, that gives us strength and wisdom as we walk through this world which is still darkened by the shadow of sin. So much transformation happens immediately in us when we give our lives to Christ. But some of the transformation that God is working in us takes time. God's people are to be a holy people because God Himself is holy. We must be, therefore, sanctified for that to take place. To be sanctified is to be made holy like God is holy. That is both immediate and also progressive. We're instantly sanctified because Christ's righteousness is now imputed to us. That means when Christ died on the cross, all who put their faith in His work, His righteousness now is accredited to our account. When God looks down upon us, He doesn't see the wretched, stumbling sinner. He sees the glory and beauty of the purity of Christ in us. So we are instantly sanctified in that way. But we are also progressively sanctified because we still live in a sinful world and we're still walking around in our sinful, broken bodies. Our past has been overcome, but it is still our past. And the shadows of what we were can still have an effect on who we are today. And the Corinthians are an example of this. They are living in the shadow of their old way of life. Rather than being united in their new identity, they were competing against one another as a church. Most of them had lived a secular culture where the strong were always attempting to rise above the rest and secure for themselves honor, boasting in what made them special. That's how they lived before they encountered Christ. It was the standard of the Roman culture. That is what they were. 
but it cannot be what they are now, for now they are Christ's. They have been made new, and so this old way of life doesn't suit them anymore. And so here Paul employs a very strong irony to get this very point across to them. He asks, why are you striving against one another as if you have something to gain by being better than one another? You already have all that you need. Verse 8, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, meaning without the apostles, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share that rule with you. So what three enviable characteristics does Paul use to describe the church at Corinth here? He says, you're already fully supplied. He says, there's no resource that's lacking there in Corinth. You're particularly blessed. Paul was constantly going around trying to raise offerings up for churches that were less blessed, that didn't have as much. And so places that had much would share with those who had little. But the Corinthian church wasn't in that position. They have everything that they need. God is supplying for them. They are a wealthy church. In fact, they rule with authority. They have, they have a, a, a freedom that many of the churches in different areas didn't experience and, 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 and enjoy. Because we only look at a piece of the letter each Sunday morning as we study together. This might not be very obvious to us, but if we're reading the whole letter in one sitting, you might notice a clear connection between verse 26 of chapter 1 and verse 8 of chapter 4 that we're in now. Think back to first. Corinthians chapter 1. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Do you remember when he shared that humbling truth with the Corinthians? He was basically saying, when God chose to save for himself a church in Corinth, he didn't go around and cherry pick the best examples of Roman society. He didn't take all the all-stars. He took the leftovers. He saved many of those who would be rejected in other places in life. He took those who were not particularly wise, those who did not come from esteemed families. He brought them into his church despite their deficiencies. So these Corinthians didn't have much to offer before they were called to salvation. If competition and rivalry was the standard among the lost Gentile world, the ones that God chose to save were not the ones who were winning. Very few noteworthy people were brought into the fold. But now Paul can rightfully and truthfully describe them as the recipients of great and eternal blessings. Look how God has enriched them since he has saved them. In saving many who the world would have otherwise rejected, the grace of God is even more clearly on display. For now they have all that they need. Now they, they are noble. Even though they were not noble of birth, they have been made noble by adoption into the kingdom of God. And what God has granted to these Gentiles who were, by the world's standards, pretty insignificant people, that says so much about the generous love of God. Also in chapter 1, Paul had said of the Corinthians, you might remember these words, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift. These Corinthians, they don't need to fight amongst each other. They're already tremendously blessed by God. They may not be able to boast in their own achievements, but they have every reason to boast in Christ because it is by His great work that they're enjoying these wonderful realities. So they are, by God's grace, like kings. 
In fact, on the surface, their blessings seem to far outweigh what Paul and the other apostles have had to deal with. They don't have it so easy. And Paul will go into more detail about this as the passage unfolds. So the point that he's essentially making here in the beginning of the passage is that compared to us apostles, compared to myself and Peter and the others, compared to me, you guys are really winners. Look at how blessed you are over there in Corinth. Look at how much you've been provided for. And, and notice that Paul, rather than feeling bitter or envious towards their favorable position in Corinth, he rejoices on their behalf. He is grateful that they are doing well. He says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Follow his reasoning here. He's basically saying, when you do well, we share in that victory. We can rejoice in you because we are one church together. This is the antithesis of the competitive mindset that was driving the rivalry attitudes in Corinth. He's saying, we're glad for you. We're not trying to one-up you. We're happy that you're doing great right now. As a people saved by grace, we should not be striving to establish some kind of a legacy for ourselves. We should be concerned about whether we shine as stars in the kingdom of God, but rather we should be concerned that Christ is shining no matter where a Christian draws breath. Remember the words of Philippians, that short letter that Paul also wrote. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what an example we have in Christ. Though he was the firstborn, beloved of God, and worthy of all honor and exaltation, considered himself lowly and made himself to be a servant for our benefit and blessing. This is a pattern that has been set for us by the Son of God. And we should look about, upon that pattern, not just as an anomaly, but as marching orders for his church, that we should walk in the same kind of pattern where we don't want to compete with one another, but rather we rejoice whenever any one of us is blessed by God because that victory counts for us as well. Paul and the apostles in correcting Corinth are not trying to tri uh, trump over them. We would love to see you excel and win, they said, because when you win, we win as well. Your victory is our victory for we are one in Christ. And then Paul begins to contrast his own comparatively sorry state of being to that of the church in Corinth. He says in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Underline exhibited there. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Underline also spectacle. Exhibited and spectacle. I want us to meditate on those two words for a second. They indicate to us that God has something to show the world through the example of these leaders. The Roman culture of that day 
was known for having great exhibitions of entertainment. They were a, a prosperous empire. Whether they were chariot races or Olympic games or gladiator battles, they loved their exhibitions. They loved their entertainment. Often at the very ends of their public spectacles, they would bring out into the arena those who had been condemned to death under Roman law or those who had been identified as enemies to the empire. And then to, to cap off the show as kind of the grand finale, they would execute them in some entertaining and creative way. They were saved to the end, these ones who were put to death to show the strength of the empire and to encourage those who came to watch to never go against the rules of the land. This is the image that Paul's drawing on when he calls himself and the other apostles a spectacle who have been brought last of all before the people. It's a sobering picture, isn't it? Rather than drawing attention to themselves in a proud way, God has chosen to use the apostles as a spectacle of humiliation. And in fulfilling that role, the apostles were following in some seriously important footsteps, weren't they? Think of Christ. Think of Christ on the cross. Luke 23 uses this exact language to describe what was witnessed by those who were present at the crucifixion. Listen to these words. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. The people who had gathered at Calvary that day came for an exhibition. But many left with heavy hearts, contemplating the weight of what they had just seen. Notice that in verse 8, the spectacle is grander than human stage alone. That these apostles are being set forth as an example to men, but also to angels. We see that God's hand is in this spectacle, that he is displaying something within these men who are trusting in Christ that will resound not only in the world, but in all of creation. And then in verse 9, a contrast is struck. Paul points out that the Corinthians were not exhibiting quite the same things that the apostles were exhibiting. Paul says, we are like fools, but here you are being wise. Here you are bragging about your wisdom. We, the apostles, are considered weak in the world, and yet you are talking about how strong and mighty you are. You're competing against one another. We are held in disrepute, and yet you're scrambling for honor amongst yourselves. If this is a competition between the brothers to see who is most blessed, somebody should tell Paul about it because he's confessing here that the apostles are the weakest of all. They are the most scorned of all. Friends, it is possible, I think, in this life to be gluttonous about blessings. To desire so much to live a life that is charmed by God and blessed by His hand that we become like 
slothful, overfed Christians that are not very much good to the kingdom of God. We can find ourselves so happy for the benefits that Jesus has to give to us that we develop an insatiable appetite for temporal blessings and we forget that there is more to discipleship than just having it easy. We might even desire those blessings to the degree that we forget that fellowship with Christ comes also with great responsibility and not a small amount of hardship. Consider some of the less desirable promises of our Savior. He promises that if we come after Him, if we trust Him in faith, that we will suffer on His behalf. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you are a Christian, you will be persecuted for what you believe in. We forget the promise that's shown in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, that we will have to endure divisions because of our stand in Christ. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And some of you have felt that, haven't you? that because of your position standing in the truth of Christ, those who you loved, those who should be connected to you, have rejected you because they can't get you if they don't get Jesus too. They're going to have to hear about your Savior if they talk with you. And so you experience that division. That's something that comes with the territory of being blessed of Christ. You will be suffering with Jesus as a result of your faith. Philippians 1, 29-30 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Friends, it is granted to you that you should suffer for the Lord God. It's not a punishment for you. It is a blessing that this Jesus who so willingly suffered on our behalf, that we might follow in footsteps and be willing to suffer as he suffered if we are called to do so. These do not just describe the church in hostile parts of the world. We say, yeah, that happens some places, right? That happens maybe in some of the remote parts of India or in China or in places where Islam is so hostile towards Christianity. But no, this is not just words for the marginal part of the church that will always be under persecution. It's words to the whole church. Throughout history and throughout the world, hardships are a part of following Christ. I don't want us to get the wrong idea this morning. It's not that we should pursue these hardships. It's not that every day when we wake up, we should be looking at ways that we could clash against the people that live around us. And I know there are some who do. Christians who always seem to be on the razor's edge of controversy. They don't seem satisfied unless someone is responding harshly to their expressions of faith. They constantly press every issue that sets them apart from non-believers to the point that they're not only a peculiar people among the lost world, but are forcibly rejected and pushed out of the culture that they are pilgrims in because of the way they approach non-believers. The idea that we are to live quiet and peaceable lives, as 1 Thessalonians 4.11 tells us to do, is a foreign concept to some Christians. 
Ironically, those who purposely seek to become the target of the world are falling into the same error the Corinthians were, but they're simply going about it in a more destructive way. They too want to prove their faithfulness over and above other Christians by always suffering like a martyr would. And isn't that kind of in the same category of trying to prove your faithfulness by showing that you're wiser than other Christians? Church, if Contra Costa County slides back into the purple zone and we find ourselves forbidden from gathering as a church, what will we do? Will we concede? Will we forsake the assembly of the saints? We have no intention of doing that. Our stance has not changed. God has called us to gather as a church and we want to continue to do that. We're going to take measures that we believe are important to the well-being of our people, but we are not waiting for the government to tell us how to worship God. God himself has told us what to do, and we trust him. And so we will continue to meet until we're forced not to meet. But we will do so because we honor Jesus, not because we have some masochistic desire to to be the object of Gavin Newsom's wrath. We're not trying to put a big target on our church for the sake of showing everybody that we are extra specially holy, more so than other churches. If persecution and pressure are a product of faithfulness, then so be it. But it's not our goal and aim to be the scorn of the world that we're trying to reach with the gospel. We do not look for persecution. We do not desire and pray for hardship. But if these less desirable promises are completely missing from our lives, don't you think we should at least step back and examine ourselves to see if perhaps we are running away from these blessings? Perhaps we are misunderstanding our place in Christ and thinking that because we are His now, that life should be smooth sailing, that it should be easygoing for the Christian, when in reality God has shown us through His Word that we should prepare ourselves for something quite different than that. If suffering and persecution and divisions are what we can expect from discipleship, then how can we battle with one another for esteem and recognition if we are all in this together and we are to be the salt of the earth? Paul continues to describe the condition of the apostles as this passage unfolds. He says, we are poorly dressed. We are hungry and thirsty, buffeted, meaning beaten, and homeless. They don't have a place to lay their head at night. We labor with our own hands. So this list of attributes that Paul is speaking of here, these are very likely all the attributes that the Corinthians, who valued prestige and success, they're very likely embarrassed to see in their leader, Paul. They wanted to follow someone who exhibited the characteristics of success, not the characteristics of defeat. So perhaps that's why they're so quick to say, I don't really follow Paul so much. I really like that Apollos guy. Or I like one of these other apostles who right now is not in a prison cell somewhere. So right now is not becoming, becoming scorned and abused for the things that he is preaching. They wanted to associate themselves with success. Paul then begins to show the Corinthians the difference in how God's apostles handle these kinds of hardships that often assail them. They have trained themselves to react in godly ways, not in earthly ways. When their reputation and standing is threatened, they don't scramble to keep it or compromise in hopes of earning it back from the world that doesn't like them anymore. They simply keep following Jesus wherever it leads them. He says, when we are reviled, what do we do? 
We don't pivot. We don't change our way. We just simply continue to do what we've been called to do. We are a blessing to the world. We are salt and light. We bless. When we are persecuted, what do we do? Do we fight back? Do we, do we make war against the world? No. We do what Christ did. We endure that persecution. We receive it, but we keep being who God has called us to be. When we are slandered, what do we do? Do we slander right back? Do we take them to court? No, we, we entreat them. We try to show them the better way of life that comes with following Christ. We, we don't get into a war of wor words where we try to make each other look foolish. No, we, we try to beg them to come to the Lord and to see the goodness of following after God's Son. In so many ways, this is like Christ's teaching, right? He said in Luke 6, verses 27 through 28, But I say to you, to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's exactly what the apostles are doing. It's so much like Christ's teaching. It's also so much like his example. Later on in the same book, Luke 23, Jesus said, while they are trying to crucify him, while they are assaulting him and hurling insults at him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Christ's teaching and Christ's example is being followed in these apostles to the degree that they have become like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You would look at these men who are looked down upon by the Romans, who were so often persecuted. The great majority of them were put to death by execution. And you would see how the world was treating them as garbage, like they were nothing, like they were worthless. It says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know what he's talking about there, right? The church in Corinth was started in large part by Paul and the, the small group of individuals who began that church with him, working side by side with him. And so he calls them his spiritual children. Not, not to in some way take the role of God the Father in their lives. That's not what he's trying to do. But he is pointing out the fact that if it wasn't for the work of missions that God had done through him, then there wouldn't even be a church in Corinth. So many of them have the work of Paul to thank for their enlightenment. God used that to save them. The goal of Paul's writing is not to shame the Corinthians, though that really should occur, shouldn't it? If they were behaving in such a foolish and immature way, there should be rightfully a bit of shame in their hearts for the ways that they were misconducting themselves, for the bad example that they were giving to the lost world around them. But that's not his goal. His goal is not to just make them feel guilty and defeated. The goal is a changed mindset in the Corinthians. He is trying to help them gain the wisdom that they don't have, even though they all claim to be wiser than one another. He wants to change their mindset so that that new mindset will bring about in them a change in behavior that they will love each other the way the church is supposed to love one another because they are now thinking about each other rightly. And so a drastic contrast exists between the comfortable, blessed state of the Corinthian believers and the worn out and stressful state of the apostles. Which of these two would you pray that God would provide for you? Would you rather be like the Corinthians who have all that they need and who are esteemed 
and who are like rulers where they live? Or would you rather be like Paul and the apostles who are thrown in prison over and over again, who are beaten, who are shipwrecked, who are, because of their itinerant preaching ministry, they don't even have a home of their own. They're constantly being brought from one place to another by the Holy Spirit. Which one would you rather be like? Like the Corinthians or like the scum of the earth? Like the refuse of the world? Paul ends this fascinating comparison with a shocking conclusion. He says, be like me. Be like me. He has just painted this picture of contrast. That their life is so much easier than his life. That their life is so much more charmed than his life. And yet he's saying, that's not what you should desire for yourselves. I'm actually encouraging you to be more like myself and like the other apostles who are willing, if needs be, to go to the sword for God, to be executed for the things of truth. Take a minute to fully grasp what Paul is saying here. He just pulled out all the stops to show that the Corinthian situation was radically more favorable than his own. And then he does the unthinkable and tells the Corinthians that they should desire to imitate him. Paul doesn't desire the same circumstances for them necessarily. He doesn't hope that they will one day be thrown in prison. He's not desiring for them that they would be beaten or scorned or mocked. No matter what happens, the blessing of knowing Jesus and the promise of our inheritance is so much more important than being admired. That is what Paul wants them to see and understand. That they shouldn't worry about coming in first place or having it easy or being esteemed over their brothers or any other superficial circumstance that the one who is young in Jesus is likely to covet. Rather, he wants them to have a maturity that is such that they would be happy if God so called them to suffer for the sake of the cross. And how does Paul describe himself in this closing verse as this spiritual father to them? Think about how a father interacts with his children. He loves to shelter them to such a degree, doesn't he? I mean, like a father who really loves his kids wants to give them the best. And I'm, uh, not that I don't want this for my boys. I do want them, as they're all sitting here on this front row. I want to give my, my boys great and wonderful things. But it's been even harder for me as a dad to not spoil my little girl, who tends to have daddy's heart wrapped around her finger. I want to give her the best. I want to make sure that she doesn't have to suffer. But a good father does not shelter his children to such a degree that when they leave his home, they are not prepared to encounter the realities of the harsh world that they live in. I have many jobs as a dad. One of them is to provide for my kids. Another one is to prepare my kids for the world that they live in. And Paul had that same responsibility to his spiritual children. He doesn't just want for them copious blessings and an easy life. He wants them ready for whatever God has called them to. He has set an example for them by following Christ through thick and thin by clinging to the Lord God, even if doing the right thing means that, he would, means that he would be persecuted for it or hurt for it. And by setting this example for his spiritual children, he is doing what a good father does. Dads, don't underestimate the impact that you have on your children. Moms, same. The way that you follow Christ in your household will show your kids the way that it's right to follow Christ. And you can tell them 
to read their Bible and to pray and to follow the words of God all you want, but if they don't see it happening in your actions and in your deeds, who do you think they're going to follow? They're going to follow you, and they're going to say they love Christ, and they're going to do the same things that you do, follow your own law instead of God's law. So be very mindful of the example that you set for your children. Paul wants to be like a godly father in a spiritual sense to these believers in Corinth, knowing full well that it's not his example properly that he wants them to follow, but rather the example of Christ in him that he is living out. We're going to see later on in chapter 11 where Paul says, Therefore, brothers, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. The apostles aren't the true spectacle here. They are not the spectacle of humility. Christ is. They are simply living their lives in such a way that the exhibition of the cross and the power that was on display there at Calvary continues to be displayed in the lives of those who have been radically transformed by what Jesus accomplished. So friends, if you are following Jesus, are you ready to set aside the things that you used to live for in your life pre-Christ? Can you rejoice in someone excelling beyond what you can do? Can you rightfully thank the Lord when somebody is smarter than you, when somebody is better prepared for, than you are, when God gifts somebody with Holy Spirit gifting that you don't have? Are you ready to applaud that and rejoice instead of feeling bitter, instead of having a rivalry in your heart, instead of wishing that you could be in their position? Are you ready to just praise God and thank the Lord for what he has done to that person? Understanding that their victory is actually your victory because you're a part of the same church as them? Can you gladly walk away from a season of comfort? You know, there will be times in your life when God will keep you from hardship, when you will have a, a nice pleasant series of years when you can, you can pray without too much anxiety, without too much stress. But are you ready and willing to walk away from this when God leads you into a, a season of struggle and hardship and challenge? Are you ready to praise his name the same in that season as you were in the season when you had much? Can you wrestle with your selfish nature in such a way that you can take captive those hearts that want to brag about what you've done? or who you're connected to, or how you excel? Can you take every thought captive to Christ? Are you ready to set aside the thing that you used to strive for before Christ was your aim and your goal? If you're not in Christ, friend, you're not ready to do any of those things because it is only as we dwell and abide in Jesus Christ that we can die to self, that we can recognize that our greatest good is not an easy path necessarily but it is whatever path that Christ chooses to give to us. So if you're not in Christ, I pray today that you will think about what Christ did to make you a child of God. That he died on the cross, taking the sins of the world upon his shoulders, suffering like a criminal, though he deserved to be exalted like a king. And that in dying, he put to death those sins and in raising on the third day showed his power over sin and death. If you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, I urge you to consider the fact that right now a great burden of sin is on your shoulders, that you are an enemy to God unless you are in Christ in faith. Give your life to him today that he might make you new and overcome this deception that is so rampant in our world. But if you are in Christ, if you've given your life to him and you're trusting in his good word, then you, Christian, 
no matter what your circumstances are right now, you are already rich. You are lacking no good thing in Christ because he has already overcome everything that really matters that is broken in you. He has made you new in him. He has bound you to God the Father. You are now a child of the living God. You're destined to rule. There is an inheritance in heaven that has been set aside for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You are ready to live as the apostles lived because it's not based on your, what you, your wisdom is or your amount of intelligence or, or whether you're skillful and can contribute to the church. The way you glorify God is simply by being faithful to God and doing whatever he has called you to do. It's more about him working in you than him working with what you have to offer. In conclusion, Hebrews uh, chapter 11 is one of the most well-known chapters of the Bible. It talks about various men and women in the Old Testament record who were faithful to God, who were blessed to know God and be near to Him, who, who followed Him to the best of their ability. This is the triumph of, of God at work in people in the Old Testament. It's on display in chapter 11. But many of the men and women who are listed there didn't get to see the full completion of what God was doing in their lives. Moses was a faithful man of God. Yet Moses didn't get to enter into Israel. He led the nation of Israel out of slavery. He led them in their wilderness wanderings. But he never got to taste the fruit of the land. David was a, a king under God's heart. He led the people of Israel to, to safety and to peace. He he defeated many of their enemies and created quiet on their borders, but he didn't get to see which of his offspring would sit on the throne forever. Isaiah didn't get to meet the suffering servant that he prophesied about. So many of the people mentioned in chapter 11 of Hebrews, throughout the Old Testament really, didn't get to see in their lifetime the full fruit of their faithfulness to him. But their example stands for us as a spectacle of humility nonetheless. Examples of those who put themselves to the side and live for the glory of God who calls them into covenant with himself. And so listen to the verses that I want to read in conclusion today from Hebrews chapter 11. This is verses 13 through 16. These, meaning the examples of those in the Old Testament, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I think this is a wonderful picture of what the Corinthians are learning through this letter from Paul that they have come out of a city that was once their home but is no longer their place of dwelling. They can't return to that way of life where they were often rivals to one another fighting against one another and trying to excel beyond each other. No, that is, that is their dead life. They've been pulled out of that. God has prepared for them now a heavenly city, a better way of life. And so he urges his children in the faith to follow the example of their spiritual father who is, ex who is himself following the example of Jesus Christ, the one Lord and Savior. May we all have a sense of the humility of, of Christ that has been put on display 
in, in, in the cross at Calvary and the, the humility that is also put on display in the apostles and others who have followed in, 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 in whose footsteps we follow in the days to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this grace that you have given to us. We thank you for the ways that you challenge your children to love you and trust you. It is not always easy to walk in Christ. Father, I can count many ways that we might find some sort of temporary relief by walking like the way the world walks, by going with the flow of the lost world around us. But Lord God, ultimately that is a path that might seem easy now, but it leads to destructive ends. And so we ask that you would strengthen your church, your bride. Help us to be unified. Help us to not try to exalt ourselves over one another, Lord God, but let us rejoice when others, even among the church, excel beyond ourselves. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we covet what other believers have had. Help us instead, God, to be thankful for whatever you bring to us right now. Let us have the strength and the power to endure it in Christ. Let us lean on the Holy Spirit that we might have understanding for what we have been called to endure. We love you, God, and thank you for this letter and for the good that it is doing us. And we pray that you're glorified in the ways we respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen.